Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we're on episode 155. My name is Tyler, of course, Pratik and Nick here. As always, please follow, please share. You can't really like on these podcasts, but share this podcast anywhere. We really do appreciate getting the word out. And with that, we're going to be kicking it right off with Pratik. So Pratik, what's going on this week in politics? So you can't always get what you want. So U.S. President Joe Biden has called for a pause in the Israel-Hamas conflict. At a Minneapolis campaign speech, Biden said, I think we need a pause, saying it would allow for hostages to be released. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken made a third trip to Israel this week, where he reiterated President Joe Biden's calls for a pause in the fighting to address a worsening humanitarian crisis after Israeli troops have tightened their encirclement of Gaza City to prevent the further escalation of Hamas. Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu on Friday pushed back against U.S. pressure calling for a humanitarian pause, saying that there can be no temporary ceasefire until the roughly 240 hostages held by Hamas are released. Blinken threatened Israel that humanitarian conditions in Gaza must improve to have partners for peace. In terms of Americans, an unconfirmed number of American citizens are stuck in Gaza, while another 400 are in line to leave Thursday. Since the October 7th attack coordinated by Hamas that killed 1,400 Israelis and saw 239 Israeli citizens taken hostage, the Israeli government has been on attack against the terrorist group occupying Gaza. Since the retaliatory attacks, 1.5 million Palestinians residing in Gaza have fled their homes, the UN said Friday. The average Gaza resident is now surviving on two pieces of bread per day, much of it made from stockpiled UN flour, said Thomas White, Gaza director for the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Demands for drinking water are also growing and people are beyond looking for bread, White said. The UN has criticized the Israeli attacks, pointing to the overwhelmed hospitals that are running low on supplies and medicine under the Israeli siege. Last week, Israeli security agencies um, uh, published video footings and clips and made them publicly available, sent to them by Hamas, showing how they ordered their militant freedom fighters to dismember, behead, murder, and rape women and children held hostage. After his discussion with Netanyahu, Blinken told the press that a temporary halt is needed to boost aid deliveries and help win the release of the hostages taken by Hamas. Netanyahu responded to Blinken saying that Israel was going full with full steam ahead unless hostages are released. Bibi has not publicly entertained the idea and has repeatedly ruled out a ceasefire. So, Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts on, um, you know, uh, on Biden saying that they want to pause in the war? Sure. Well, it seems like the standstill at this point is the Palestinians, or rather Hamas, has these hostages. That's their leverage. Israel's saying, until you return those hostages, we're just going to we're gonna just bomb the shit out of you. We're just going to go all out. We're going to do what we have to do to get our citizens back. And the United States is saying, we actually can't get to the point where they're able to return the hostages unless we provide them some, some sort of humanitarian aid. So... Yeah, I mean, that's going to be really tough to overcome because this has been the issue we've had for over a month now. We're just sitting here. They don't want to return the hostages. I think Hamas realizes they are winning the PR war largely across the world. People are riled up. They're angry. Palestinians are being attacked, are being ripped apart, essentially. And they're not willing to compromise. And I don't know if they should. If, for instance, Mexico had taken a bunch of U.S. hostages and we said, we're going to keep bombing you until you return these hostages and they don't, I think we would continue to bomb them. We'd probably be justified in that. And th th that's just pure realistic military talk. Obviously, I don't want anyone to get hurt. But what are they supposed to do when 
the other country literally has their citizens hostage and they're unwilling to return them. What do they do? Yeah, I think for this, it is very reminiscent, as all things Biden administration, of Obama's policies in everything, right? Look at Keystone XL Pipeline. It was just continuing what Obama did when he you know, halted that and canceled it. Biden comes in, does the exact same thing. There are a lot of other examples like that. I don't want to belabor the point here, but Israel and Palestine is another one, clear case, where Obama, for example, was friends with Israel, but also every so often said, hey, we don't like what you're doing when it comes to the Palestinian um, territories. You need to do something different. And every time Obama said that, the Israelis kind of looked at him and said, what, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, <laughs> either you're supporting us fully or you don't get to say anything at all. So it's it's been this very strange thing where the United States is trying to play both sides in this. One, to support Israel pretty much unconditionally. But two, they do try to implement conditions. And Biden is doing that here where time and time again, you will see it's not all these other countries around the world that are going to get Israel to stop doing any one thing. It's every single time the United States saying, hey, guys, take it easy. Hey, guys, don't sever communications. Don't stop the flow of aid coming in through the border with Egypt. Don't do this. Don't do that. And sometimes Israel listens. But most of the time, they're just doing what they're going to do. They're a sovereign state. They have full agency in this situation. The Israeli government is going to respond how they see fit. And even though the United States can have some informal pressure on them, it's not like suddenly we're going to threaten to go to, to war with them if they do something we don't like. So the United States is in a very weird bind here, in a very weird pickle, where, like Tyler said, you know, mass media has turned for a lot of countries around the world, you know, a lot of people being more sympathetic towards the Palestinians as time goes on. You know, at first and now, most people are still more sympathetic to Israel. And I think that's a good point to, to hit on. But I really do think the U.S. is in a strange place where, one, we're trying to say we support Israel no matter what, but on the other hand, saying, cool it down, so many civilians are dying is there another way that we could approach this? And the Israeli government saying, no, don't tell us what to do. These are our people. Get out of the way. Pratik? So I have a lot of opinions on this. Um, my main problem is that this is the problem with the Biden administration is we're so they're really hypocritical. In my opinion, if you're fighting this war in Ukraine that you have nothing to do with, that's been going on for two years, and we're like financing the crap out of that war. Why can't we do the same thing with our ally that has literally been with us since the creation of the country? And instead, why are we trying to cave to all these like pressures that are from the Palestinian side that want us to like, you know, not be fighting the war against Israel? Hamas is the, is the one that was the aggressor in this war. They're the ones that came out and bombed and killed all these people. 1,400 Israelis, and then they took 239 Israeli people hostage. Then they've surfaced videos about how they're going to behead, kidnap, murder, and rape all these people. But instead of us talking about that, we feel all sympathetic towards the Palestinian cause of all these people that are dying in Palestine that was your area controlled by Hamas. Hamas knew all this stuff going in. They knew that if they attacked Israel, Israel is going to attack back and their people are going to suffer and their hospitals are going to be overwhelmed and people are going to be dying in Palestine and all these people are going to flee. They knew that going in. They're not dumb. And I think the problem is that America, the problem with the Biden administration is that they like caving to all these pressures because they're looking at it from a political standpoint. The weirdest thing that nobody has acknowledged yet in any of the news, because he looked it up, RFK is bo boosting up in the polls. 
weird thing about RFK is RFK is anti-war. RFK is like heavily on the side that we shouldn't be involved in the Israel-Hamas war and that, you know, Palestinians are suffering right now. He's very pro-Israel, actually. He's always been anti-war, but he's been explicitly pro-Israel since this since this began. At least that's the messaging I've seen on spaces like X and, and through interviews. To me, it seems like he is the anti-war candidate, but somehow... He's also very pro-Israel and even 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 recommends supporting our allies in Israel more than someone like Ramaswamy, who's basically like, as long as we get American hostages out, I'm not going to fund anything you guys do. And briefly, just to touch on something Nick said, there, there is something the U.S. can do, and that is pull funding. That's the one lever that we could pull to really get Israel to maybe question what they're doing. But even then, they have enough of their own funds where they could just say, sorry, we're going to do what we have to do to protect our nation. And that's why the U.S. is in such a bind. RFK, actually, you're right. Um, I did research it. He has said that he calls for more aid to Israel, so I was wrong. But I do think the main problem with the Biden administration is that we they tried so hard to like try to you know, make all sides feel happy. And I don't think you can do that. We're not doing that with the Russia-Ukraine war. We're not like trying to appease Russia be like, you know, you guys need to, Ukraine, you guys need to chill out a bit. You can't be in attack with Russia. Russia is like the main player over there. You guys got to relax your relations. We're not doing that over there. But with Israel, we always find this need that we don't want them to like do certain things to Palestine, even if Palestine does whatever it takes to try to blow everybody up. And I think that's the problem with the obama biden administration is obama was the one that created this iran nuclear deal talk no other democrat before him was talking about we need to you know increase improve our relations with iran because iran's financing all these terror activities against israel and then look at what happens when you give iran more leverage and you back off of iran a little bit what does iran do iran finances terrorism and they finance hezbollah and hamas to literally go blow up israel and instead of taking responsibility responsibility for any of these things we like to play chicken all the time where we don't want to take a stance that we don't want to be like adamantly pro-israel because then you might have all these young palestinian pro-palestinian democratic voter base that won't vote for you because they're all sympathetic towards the palestinian cause and i think that this is my issue is that if you have an ally stick with your ally and if you were in the same situation as israel you would be doing the same exact thing so i think it's very hypocritical and this is what i definitely don't like about democrats right now is that these are this is their problem why are we so pro ukraine when we're not pro israel like we need to be pro israel it's like ukraine situation is different we've been in war over there for two years we've never said anything that we want to back off putin why are we suggesting israel to do the same especially when they've killed at 1400 israelis two weeks ago let me play devil's advocate a little bit so i think you made some good points there but also the middle east is it's a tightrope walk right now. Right now, it's a tightrope walk. You could fall from either end. The balance is going to, you know, get blown up if more powers get involved. And we're seeing that. We're seeing more countries, more organizations get involved in what in this conflict that's going on. And the United States does not want to start a world war. Also, we, I spoke about this last week. If we open war on too many fronts, that's not going to be good for us. We can't extend ourselves too thin because let's say something breaks out with China, then we're completely screwed. We're funding Israel. We're funding Ukraine. We're going to fund China. That, that That's a war on three fronts, and that's not going to be helpful for us. So what's in the U.S.'s best interest right now, outside of immediate you know, expedient politics for the Democrats, is that they don't want to be fighting a war on another front. 
And I understand that. So what they're trying to do is trying to come to some sort of diplomatic solution where we're not angering the Palestinian side or not because we care about Palestine so much, but it's all the other powers in the region. For instance, would Saudi Arabia not be interested in something like the Abraham Accords if we were to go all out against Palestine, support Israel full full stop? And I, that's that's what I think the struggle is with the administration. I think that's what they're trying to take into account. Um with what's going on it's not as simple as they're our ally we have to support it them is, in my opinion it's simple dude israel exists because they've defended themselves time and time again half and of the I time america has been wishy-washy on our relationship we're a garbage ally dude if i was israel i'd be like why are, why is america our ally what a garbage israel piece of would not be a are. state without the u.s they wouldn't they wouldn't exist if they had not had our support yeah the, that's fine history. but how many times have israel been attacked how many countries I, are around that want to blow them up? And the I other agree. problem with Israel is that whenever if you, Palestine attacked Israel, why are all these UN people all supporting Palestine? And why is like America not taking any stance against supporting Israel? Why are we not defending Israel? We should be defending these attacks. We should be saying that, look, these people were the ones that were the aggressors. They bombed all these people. They murdered and kidnapped and, you know, like raped all these people. We need to stand up and support Israel. Instead of doing that, we're like, we don't want to do that because, you That's know, been we, the we messaging. don't want to go to if war. If you listen and to why Biden's statement, statements that's what he's saying Look, sometimes people like ramaswamy are right and sometimes people like ramaswamy are wrong people like ramaswamy would argue that why are we fighting and spending all this money in ukraine when we have nothing to do with that situation instead we're fighting a war over there he's there's no problem with ukraine we're spending a lot more money they had this new package that come out that they were going to spend millions of more dollars in ukraine but but instead of like in my opinion if you wanted to fight a war anywhere if it was, if there was China attacking Taiwan, Ukraine, atta Russia attacking Ukraine, and then um, Palestine attacking Israel, support Israel. Forget about those other countries. Israel this is the country least country chance of actually being taken over by Palestine. But you know there are other. Powers but in even the region, then, right Tyler, like, see, what I never understand about our administrations is that Israel has been our ally from the get go. We need to support our allies. If that means that we have to tear apart all these Abrahamic Accords and all these things we've worked on for decades with Saudi Arabia to try to negotiate a peace deal, so be it. Israel's our ally. No, they got attacked no by Palestine. Palestine, Palestinians, Hamas, is like coordinating an attack and trying to blow up this country and exterminate them from ever existing. In order to prevent that, we're trying to solve this Saudi Arabia situation, which we don't even know what will happen. Maybe Saudi Arabia is like, look, look chess, at America. They're... Yeah, but then maybe Saudi Arabia is like, look, America is taking a stance to protect their ally. They're, they're a genuine player. Maybe we should listen to them and try to come up with a compromise because we support them over Iran. And what is Iran going to do? Iran's going to continue to finance all this terrorism going on. The thing is, you try to play all these politics, but I would just argue that America is doing all this stuff wrong. And if I was an Israeli, if I was a Jewish citizen in America, I would be very pissed off at the American government right now. And I would be like, man, this is my government. My government doesn't stand by the people that, you know, that we're supposed to be allies with, but we like to finance all these other activities elsewhere because we have nothing to do with them. Instead of trying to support our ally that we've been allies with for literally like the, since Israel's existed. And if it wasn't for U.S., 
maybe Israel wouldn't exist, but I doubt that too, because America never really takes a full-on stance in supporting Israel. We're a garbage ally to have. We need to be like Iran. Iran finances all this terrorism around the world. At least they stick by it. Look at us. We can't even we can't even stand by our allies. We're just like, yeah, screw our screw our people. We just need to. We know, back do off. not need to be like Iran. I, I understand what you're saying. We do not need to be like. No, Iran. but what I'm you're, you're misinterpreting me. What I'm saying is, look, Iran's a terrible garbage country. But Iran, yeah, but they tells saying everybody, they're consistent. Exactly. That's fair, but we they're are funny. consistent. Yeah. We're not consistent. Like U.S. funding has been consistent. That's fine, but US we're not support consistent has with their message in support of Israel. What a terrible president, man. I would not want Biden to be president. I would for support RFK over Biden because if Biden doesn't support Israel, he's wishy-washy about it. What a garbage guy. He supports guy. Israel. But full stop. Every message I've seen from Biden has been we need to stand with our allies in Israel. We but need he's to not. stand with Israel. We're Actions sending them aid. louder than words. But we're, we just had this aid package that's supposed to be going through to give them additional. Who cares about aid packages when you can't support a country that's like fighting back to against another assailant that was literally bombing and murdering fourteen hundred Israelis? We can't stand by our ally. We can't support them on their decision. Well, what Pratik, kind of ally hold on, hold on, are we? Hold on, hold on. We're gonna get into the whole cycle all over again. Let's not do this again. What critique for you? What does support mean? Because the U.S. is giving them money. We're flying Reaper drones over Gaza. We have bases in the region where we're literally bombing other people in Syria because of what the IDF yeah. is doing. So what does support to you look support like? Support for me is that stand by Israel's decision and go by whatever Israel wants to do because they were the, they were the people attacked. You weren't attacked. Israel was attacked. So whatever decision Israel wants to make, they're making the decision that's best suited for them and based on what the people in that region want. And the people of that region are the ones that are going to be the most affected. So basically just don't criticize. That's that's yes. the only thing for Stand you. Stand by don't criticize. whatever decision they okay. want. If Israel wants to attack, let them attack. If Israel wants a peace deal, help them garner a peace deal. But don't criticize Israel for going on attack against Palestine because they're the ones that got attacked. Stand Can by you their show decision. me the messaging where the Biden administration said we're against it? Like, I, I haven't called seen for a that pause. Anywhere. I think it's the same thing, Dollar. If you're you're saying that uh, Israel needs to cease fire against Palestine, which basically means stop attacking Palestine, you are essentially saying that what Israel is doing is wrong, and Israel shouldn't be attacking Palestine, and America is not in support of us attacking Palestine, of, of Israel attacking Palestine, and they need to have a temporary ceasefire. A temporary ceasefire is the same thing as stopping a war. They're, they're trying to say, this is in the best interest of everyone. A diplomatic solution is better than warfare. Lots of people have died. Let's go to the table. And to me, I don't know why. But that, is I don't it in think the best decision anti- when the people that were attacked are the ones that are like literally attacking back, but we're saying don't attack back because that's wrong? How is that in the best? How is that in the best interest of the Israelis? This gets into what is a proportional response? Should Israel be able to wipe Palestine off the face of the map? Yes, if they because want Palestine was trying to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. If one side does it to one side, if the other side doesn't do the same thing, then if America tells Israel to stop, that means that we're on Palestinian side. I think you were to give you credit. I think you were very consistent. Right. And in terms of what you're saying, I think what you're saying is like super clear, super consistent. I think what's funny is that all the stuff you're saying is exactly what Iran and all the other Arab nations say for Palestinians, where, for example, you could say Israel didn't exist 100 years ago. They forced all these people out of their homes. And now, as a result, 
they have some sort of right. I'm not saying this is the case, but You're I'm right. saying like it's your fair. exact messaging is exactly what the Iranians, exactly what Hamas, and exactly what all these other people say. So it's literally at that point just like, which side are you on? Because if you're going to call for the pure eradication of another state and to say that anything is permissible, then literally both sides are doing that. And I'm not saying that one is like morally, I, I don't know. But see, I'm just saying, I don't really care about the morals. I don't really even care about what the players believe. I just argue that if you're the person being attacked and we're the ally of the person being attacked, but you, you would stand say, by that but, ally. But Pratik, they would say that Israel started all of it. I would say that Israel's your and ally, you and no that. matter what happens, we need to stand by Israel. If Israel feels attacked, then we have to support Israel. It doesn't matter about what the players and their intentions are. All that matters is that one player is our ally, and we need to support our ally till the very end. And if we can't do that, we're a garbage ally. Let's let's get to Tyler's point where he said the idea of proportionate response, right? Because I think this does matter a lot. For example, in World War II, and Ben Shapiro brought this up when he went to the Oxford Union this past week, which was actually a pretty good point. He said in World War II, you know, the, the numbers he used was 60,000 um, British civilians being killed by the Nazis. And then when the Allies went ahead and bombed all these German cities, he said two million German citizens died, like civilians died because of the Allies. Like that is not proportionate at all. I think the actual number is a lot less than that. I think it's in the hundreds of thousands, but whatever. We'll use his number just to keep it simple, where it's like 60,000 dead in Britain. And then when we, you know, reattack with the allies, you have millions of German citizens dying, right? They were not armed soldiers. They were not whatever. Like, is that a proportionate response? And at what point do you say, okay, we've killed enough civilians. It's time to sort of end this. Where, for example, I personally, I would feel very different Um when it comes to the Israel Hamas stuff, if Hamas had even an inkling of winning this, like if they had an inkling of winning, I would feel very differently about this. I would be like, okay, Israel's totally justified. What they're doing is fine. But because Israel has like 95 to 99% of the military power in this situation, all of my sympathy for what they're doing goes way, way down where I feel like if you're, if you're winning the war so, so clearly, and you're so much in the military superiority, I think it's incumbent on you at a certain point to be the dip the dip diplomacy maker to say like, hey, you've lost. Here are the terms. Accept them. And if you don't, we're going to keep bombing you. But here are some peace terms because we've won and they're not doing that. So I don't know. That's that's my only thing where if they were losing, if they were losing badly, frankly, then I think that everything they're doing is justified if Israel actually was losing. But because they have the upper hand in so many ways, I think that's why a lot of people are flipping where it's like, OK, like, what's the real war here? Like, I don't know. Not to say that what happened isn't bad, but as far as like an actual, like, you know, one big power versus another power, I think it's the ultimate flip of what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, where, for example, everyone assumed Russia had all the military power. They were going to run through them. They were going to win really quickly. We don't like Russia, so we supported Ukraine, right? I think if you had the exact same stuff with Israel being the weaker power and the weaker military, I think all those same people, funnily enough, would have the, all the exact same stuff to say, oh, we need to support Israel unconditionally because they're fighting against this big bad foe that they cannot possibly beat. And that's why they need billions and billions of U.S. dollars. Anyway, maybe I'm losing the plot, but the proportionate response, just war, you know, all, all those ideas. What what's your take on that? I disagree. I believe that if you're if you're the person being attacked, then the onus is on them to make the decision that they want to make. They were the ones being attacked first. Ukraine didn't attack Russia. 
Russia attacked Ukraine. So we stand by whatever Ukraine's decision is in that in that conflict resolution. We haven't said that Ukraine needs to cave into Russia because you know Russia Russia's the bigger player over there, so you need to cave in. We're not doing but that. But the reason we're giving them but, so much money is because they are the smaller military. It doesn't That's matter. what I was saying with the money. But I'm claim. saying is, it wasn't doesn't who matter the who's the smaller or bigger player. What matters is, is who is our ally. If uh, if Israel is the one being attacked. And they're the ones that were the ones that, you know, like had the 1400 Israelis murdered. Then the onus is on Israel to decide the pathway forward. If Israel wants to attack Palestine, they can attack Palestine. If Israel wants to have a diplomatic negotiation, they can have a diplomatic negotiation. All America's role in this thing should be whatever Israel wants to do, we fully support because we're their ally. If America decides to play both sides where we're like, oh man, you know, we feel sympathetic for the Palestinian cause, why? They didn't, Israel didn't go attack Palestine. Sure, they had, they gave areas to Palestine a long time ago. They were literally living in Israeli land because Israel granted those lands to Palestine. No matter how crappy the situation was, Israel still did something to give them that land. Now, on the flip side. Well, they didn't really if, give them the land. They were living there in the first place, but yeah. Either way, they're still under Israeli protection. Now, the problem is after the Hamas attack happened, Israel is fully justified to do whatever they want to do. Now, we can criticize and we could be like, Israel shouldn't do this or Israel shouldn't do that. The problem is, is if it was the flip way around and if Palestine did that to Israel, and let's say, um, let's say Palestine. Uh, let's say the Israelis were the ones that originally attacked Palestine, and that we just kept the Israelis just kept bombing Palestinian lands. And let's say Hamas decided to go on a terror attack against Israel. Then our stupid administration would say, "Oh, look at Palestine." They're fighting back because Israel was the ones that were just massacring these Palestinians. They would make that argument. And then the same liberals that we have in office that would be like, oh, well, you know, we need to have a pause, would be like, Palestine is justified on doing what they did against Israel. It's a bunch of BS. And my problem is, is that it doesn't matter whether you're pro-Palestinian or pro-Israeli. What matters is, is that Israel is America's ally. Israel was attacked. And whatever Israel wants to do, let Israel do. Because America is Israel's ally. We're not the one dictating the shots. All right. So, so um, a few, th let's just make it a little, let's just categorize what we're trying to get out of this. So, uh, obviously, warfare, it is what it is. It has its own ethics and morals, and people will do what they'll do. But at the same time, there should be a goal, right? Like, Israel responded. Now we need to go. All right. What is their goal? Are they trying to get vengeance? That can be a goal. I mean, maybe that's part of it. Are they trying to return the hostages? Is that all they want? Would that suffice? Um, are you trying to prevent future wars? Like all these things we have to consider with how we're responding now. So if I'm Israel, I'm going, all right, what is our goal? Obviously, we want vengeance. We did attack them. Okay, we got our vengeance. Maybe that's not enough vengeance for some people, but hey, they got some vengeance. Now there are hostages. If they got the hostages back, does everything end? Is it like, all right, we're good now? Um, or are we trying to go in the future, maybe we should stop something like this from happening again. I don't see that there's a way to stop something like from this happening again if we don't come to some sort of solution that doesn't involve just simply wiping them off the face of the planet. And that's the issue I have. It's not that a lot, like the messaging, I can't disagree with the Biden administration. So they're, they're supporting Israel, but I also think you can sympathize greatly 
with the Palestinians because so many of them are not part of this terrorist organization known as Hamas. So I don't, I, don't, I, don't I don't think they that's elected fine, Hamas. But I, I just I don't think it, I don't think there's a contradiction to say there are millions of people that are going to die that potentially could die that I don't think that's just. But at the same time, I don't think is, the Israelis are just for returning. You know, for, from being attacked and responding and responding the way they did. That's why this is such a moral issue. It's, I don't. You can actually sympathize with them, but also also support Israel in a way. And I think the only solution that's going to prevent the, these wars. So this war has been going on for a hundred plus years. It's going to keep going on. How can we prevent it from happening again? I just don't see that bombs is the only answer. And that's why I have to disagree with your your position. Uh, what Biden's literally saying we need to pause this war. Now the problem with all that stuff. Is that they still have Israelis? They still have Israelis hostage over there. If they have a temporary ceasefire, it's not like Palestine's gonna be like, "Look, hey guys, we paused the war. All right, you guys can have your hostages back. We don't care about that." They're not gonna do that. They're still gonna do whatever they were doing before. We're just being dumb because we're trying to promote them to cave in. Like that's stupid. The Hamas has also said we're we're willing to let as many of yeah, our they're people murder as possible. Anything. They're also the we're terrorist organization die. that bombed Israel in the beginning. Who cares about what for, they say? For sure, for sure, but. Them dying isn't apparently something that deters them, is what I'm saying. All I know is, man, my opinion is just um, Israel is the one that got attacked. Israel's their ally. Let Israel decide whatever they want to do because it's Israel's decision. They're the ones that got attacked. They're the ones whose hostages are taken over by Palestine. And they're the people that are the ones that were the ones that suffered the casualties to begin with. It wasn't America. It wasn't any other player. It was Israel. And Israel's their ally. So let Israel decide whatever they want to do. And America should give a blank check and be happy with giving whatever support we want to give them for them to carry out whatever causes that they want to fight because they're our ally. If Israel wasn't our ally and let say the other side was their ally i would argue the same thing but israel's our ally so because israel's our ally we need to support our ally blindly because if we don't then we're a garbage ally and we're responsible for literally allowing we're basically promoting israel to cave into the hamas um, demands by pausing the war giving hamas more aid giving palestinians more aid and then there's still a chance that they're still going to be holding their israeli people hostage and it's dumb. And if I was an Israeli citizen right now, I'd be really pissed off at America. And I'd be very pro BB Netanyahu for not caving into stupid American demands. That's it. I'm, this is just <laughs> me. But I think as long as Hamas is totally destroyed, I don't think BB actually cares about the hostages. Like straight up, I don't think he cares. But, uh, but, um, even but again, then, that's no critique. Let me, let me talk. Let me talk. All right. So this situation is very reminiscent to 9-11 in a lot of ways even like the bush if you look at what that family i know they're irrelevant now after jeb lost but if you look at what the bush family is saying they're like this is just like 9-11 we need to support israel 100 percent. and i think ultimately like if for example when the u.s went to war in the middle east following 9-11 and all these other countries ended up supporting us that's exactly pratik what you're saying israel expects from the United States and from all their other allies, right? And I feel like that is very reasonable. If you agree with that logic, that is incredibly That's my reasonable. logic. My, my question is just, and Tyler was getting at this too, is like, at what point do you end the conflict, right? Because going into the Middle East, we had no real clear you know, goal of victory. We did at the start, and then we won so quickly that we were like, oh, we should just get involved in nation building for 20 years and look how that worked out. So the thing is like, I, I just don't know how this ends without totally wiping Hamas off the face of the planet for the Israeli government. And I think because it's so close to Israel and this is flared up in the past as well, 
Like, it, this is not just, like, the first 9-11. This is, you know, these things have happened before, and now we finally cannot tolerate it anymore, and we need to be rid of this once and for all. And that's the only reason why I say, ultimately, at the end of the day, like, I'm sure on some human level he does care about the hostages, but his main goal is just to eliminate Hamas, period, because one, the Israeli security forces and intelligence agency, which is supposed to be the best in the world, was totally embarrassed, made to look very bad. Bibi Netanyahu frames himself as a strong leader who can protect his people, and clearly he cannot. And so for this, he really needs to show both his citizens as well as other people, don't mess with Israel, otherwise we are going to totally annihilate you. And for Hamas, he just cannot tolerate it and is going to destroy that organization and all the people who are a part of it. So I get it. I know that's what's going to happen. It's just a question of, okay, once you do that, what happens to all the other civilians living in Gaza? Like, where do they go? Do you force them into Egypt? Do you force them somewhere else? The Egyptians don't want them. So like, what do you do with that population? Do you reoccupy Gaza again? That would be a nightmare, especially after this. So, like, what's the end game there? And I don't think that's clearly figured out. I don't think they have to figure it out immediately, but I, I just don't know if the Israelis have a clear... Yeah, I, there's no, you know, uh, sort of pitch to the rest of the world. And the United States, for, for us, for example, like, yes, we support Israel pretty much unconditionally. But also, for example, you mentioned Saudi Arabia earlier. The Saudis have actually started to change their tone. They've started to condemn the IDF. They've started to say, we are not going to have these peace. And to be fair, Pratik, to you, again, being very consistent, you're saying none of that matters. None of the other stuff in the Middle East matters because this is purely just Israel and Hamas. And we need to support Israel because they need to figure it out. And to be fair, that's a really good argument. And it's probably going to win the day. I, well, really good argument. That's debatable. Let's move on to our next. We talked about this for 35 minutes now, um, and this still has to do with it, quite frankly. So let me read the next article. We have, is Biden pro-Palestinian genocide? So Rep. Rashid Tlaib accused Biden of supporting genocide of Palestinians, saying Joe Biden supported the genocide of the Palestinian people. The American people won't forget. Support a ceasefire now or don't count on us in 2024. Following her message, Rep. Majorie Taylor Greene attempted to censor a Rep. Rashid Tlaib failed on Wednesday, in part thanks to three of Tlaib's home state Republican colleagues who were involved in being among the majority of Republicans, uh, tabling the censure resolution. MTG's censure resolution accused Tlaib of being anti-Semitic, sympathizing with terrorists, and leading an insurrection. So with everything we just talked about, Biden, you know, being against Israel, he's also being accused of, you know, being pro-Palestinian genocide. So obviously the messaging's all over the place. What are, your, what are your guys' thoughts on this? Let's keep this one a little bit shorter. I feel like we kind of hit this topic to death, but what are your thoughts? I think that this is the problem when you try to play both sides of the aisle. This will happen. Be one side or be one, be the other side, but be honest and consistent with it. I don't like people like Tlaib because these are the issues that they have with their democratic side as they elect all these pro-Palestinian people and all this stuff. But the good thing is, is that they did try to, you know, censor her, the Republicans. They did try to put, and it did get tabled. But MTG did lead the cause. One good thing MTG did was she called out a spade for a spade. Tlaib was literally supporting Palestine, saying that, you know, the, the Americans were supporting the genocide of these people. But the genocide didn't begin in Palestine. It began in Israel. And the Palestinians attacked Israel first. So the America should be justified in doing whatever it takes to support Israel. And if Tlaib feels like differently, well, maybe people from Michigan need to learn that they probably shouldn't support Tlaib. That's my opinion. Yeah, I mean, look, Michigan has a very high Muslim population now. That's where a lot of refugees ended up settling. 
and they elected her. And that's the majority position among Muslim communities is that it's pro-Palestine and anti-Israel. And that's what your constituency wants. So in a weird way, again, not to make excuses, but like if you truly represent your constituents and they don't like Israel, then in a way she's doing her job. Yeah, well, if your constituents are Nazis and do you have to be a Nazi? Like, I, I mean, it's still but that's what Tlaib is. That they're we, she's anti-Semitic. We know, but the funny the thing, the funny thing is, they're gonna it. say that the uh, roles have been reversed in a way, because again, who is the state with all the power? It's Israel. Like that's that's how it is today. Yeah, it's always this David versus Goliath situation. Who's the more oppressed person? Being on their side is the morally just position. But this is a complex issue. Um, to me, like I said, it needs to be handled more like chess than checkers. It's not that simple. There's so many factors going into this. I can assure you, Tyler, I can be dumb in both chess and checkers. They're both yes. very simple <laughs> games for stupid people, and I excel at both. Um, and but... I will keep my same consistent message that we talked about earlier, that it's up to Israel to decide what their ending outcome is, and we need to support Israel. For, if, we, if we're unconditional allies... Being an unconditional ally means we have to be unconditional about it. If we decided that we need to have Did we get married to Israel? Where did we say, we're we're your unconditional love. We need to support you in all and everything you do. (laughs) Oh, wait. The U.S. gives them tens of billions of dollars every single year. They don't need us. Is that not enough for you? No, because we're not we're not like fully complying with our support with them, and the yeah, Biden administration does say that we provide unconditional support to Israel. Who said unconditional support? They Who say that? that. That's part of their own speeches. Biden, in all of his okay. speeches, he's saying that we have or we're providing our unconditional support to Israel. What that means is this. He's not really providing it, but that's what he's saying. And if he's saying that, then they need to be unconditional about it. And if they have conditions on their support and about they start threatening the other side for not, you know, trying to negotiate a peace deal, it's not really unconditional. And if I was Israeli, I'd be like, man, we got a garbage ally that makes up stuff and doesn't follow up to their demands. The funny thing about Marjorie Taylor Greene, by the way, is that pro MPG now, um, by the way. She she ended up speaking at um, a conference that was funded by a literal neo-Nazi, Nick Fuentes. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's like it's like both of these people, <laughs> you know, you can't really root for either in this situation. So it, it's just a very strange type of ordeal. But with that, I think we've... Oh, Tyler, final thoughts. Well, we really need the Italian-American take on this, which is why we need to get DeSantis into the Palestinian conversation. <laughs> so Nick, bring it to us. So you've heard of cancel culture. How about hashtag cancel justice? So Governor Ron DeSantis made a direct move disbanding students for justice in Palestine campus charters for their actions post-attack and their anti-Israel protest calls. He cited Florida law and accused the group of aiding Hamas, a foreign terrorist organization. Nikki Haley, however, has taken a different route. She's emphasizing the school's tax exemption status as leverage. She vowed consequences if those institutions don't do enough to combat anti-Semitism, particularly the denial of Israel's right to exist. And Haley's focus leans towards financial repercussions to enforce efforts against anti-Semitism in its various forms. Hold on. Hold on. What does anti-Semitism have to do with the right of Israel to exist? We're just talking about two well, different things. Because you can hate thing, Jewish though. people, and you can you can you can not hate Jewish people and believe that there shouldn't be a Jewish state because the Palestinians were there first. That's an argument you can have. I don't think you should mandate by law that schools, you know, lose tax exempt status because someone has that. That that's not anti-Semitic to not be pro-Israel. I don't well, think. 
Well, Tyler, one thing is the chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, calls for the genocide of everyone living in what is Israel. So all the Jews will be dead. If you're if pro Palestine, but, but I'm so saying, I, but I, I got you in that case, but what I'm saying is you, you can be not anti-Semitic and not believe Israel should exist. I, I agree I, with I, you. Yeah, that, there are plenty of Jews but who think that, that, by the way. Exactly. Why would I want the government to have any sort of say in whether people believe that or not? Because it's not its not a hatred to believe that a state shouldn't exist. You, all I'm saying is you got to separate the two. They can, they obviously go together a lot of the time, but I don't like when Nikki Haley says that because to me, you're just conflating two things, and that's just a misunderstanding. Well, Vivek Ramaswamy said the same thing as you. Uh, well, not the same thing. He didn't. He said the, the same thing as you about in Jewish, the debate. But about Nikki, <laughs> about Nikki Haley saying this, right? He said free speech should be allowed no matter what, even if it's you know hateful, even if it's critical of people. He recognized that there are laws in place and whatever, but he said like people have a right to speak, and you shouldn't be pressuring these student groups to disband because you know it's their right as American citizens to make their voices heard because of the First Amendment. I don't know if I'm getting my point across here. It's she's saying that. Schools should lose tax-exempt status if they don't combat anti-Semitism because of people saying that they deny that Israel has a right to exist. That's not anti-Semitic. Right. That's a stupid statement. Nikki Haley, you're being stupid here. It's all, it's, it's, if you can prove me wrong, if you have an argument against what I'm saying, I'd love to hear it. I just don't well, know Well, I agree with you, missing. so let's turn to critique because, yeah. I mean— what because there are so many Jews that also think that just being anti-Israel doesn't mean you're anti-Semitic. Look at yeah. Bernie Sanders. He's in Congress. He, he does this. He criticizes Israel the whole time. That doesn't mean he's anti-Semitic. Doesn't mean he hates Jews. But Pratik, let's go to you. I think right now, based on the situation at hand, the Palestinians, especially Hamas, Hamas is the assailant in this war. They're the ones that claim that they want to wipe Israel off the earth. Jew Jews don't deserve to exist. They've basically got funding from Iran that has made countless statements, especially their um, grand Ayatollah, who has said that, you know, we need to exterminate Israel off the map. So if Hamas is the assailant in this war and they're the ones that attacked Israel initially that murdered that led to the murder of 1400 Israelis and another however many, 239 people that got held hostage, I do think that if right now in the current present day if the is if the pro palestinian students are, are you know criticizing israel for you know attacking back palestine it could be seen as anti-semitic because of the notions at play prior to the attack i think if the if the conversation was a little bit different and it was it laid out a little bit differently and let's say the actions that took place happened in a different manner then I would argue that what Tyler's saying is correct. But because certain things led to that incident to take place and certain players that got involved having messages taking place before the attack saying that we want to wipe Israel off the map, I do think that does classify as anti-Semitism. Now, again, students that are in college, they're not the brightest crayons in the book. So they're not going to be like, oh man, they're not going to be like, oh, we're very, we're very anti-Semitic. I don't really book. think students that are in these pro Palestinian organizations are that like they feel that strongly about stuff. They're just virtue signaling. They're not like but so they're not Nikki really Haley. like pro palestine They're not really like oh man, we want to wipe Israel off the map. But the players that 
originally coordinated the attack, that was the goal at hand, is Hamas wanted to wipe Israel off the map. And if not Hamas, the main king player, Iran, was they're the ones that finance all the stuff, and that's their objective, is they don't want Israel to exist anymore. So I think that's yeah. the issue. It's not the students, I, it's the I get people that. that were I, the players. I get war. that, but um, I, I still... It could be right in the 90% of cases where anti-Semitic people don't believe Israel should exist, all that. I just don't like that the government is holding this over institutions to say you have to hold this intellectual belief when it, that, that, that's what it is. It, you don't have to be hate, hateful and, and anti-Semitic at all to not believe that Israel should be a state. Like the whole, And I know you're saying based off events and what's been going on recently, but looking at the history in totality, you know— I think a lot of people have taken that position and I've argued for it quite well. I don't agree with it, but again, I just because I don't agree with something doesn't mean people shouldn't be able to say. We're not talking about whether it's right or wrong here. We're talking about should they be able to say things like this? And I think they absolutely should. And I, that's why I'm not I'm not supporting what, what Nikki Haley had said here. But looking at DeSantis... Um, again, if you're, if you're specifically going after groups for being anti-Israel... I don't think that's right. But if they're calling for genocide, then yeah. I mean, look, if you're calling for violence, if you're calling for, for that war and that sort of thing, maybe maybe I have a different tone. But on this, I just it's hard for me to budge. You know what's so funny? I, I see this in a way of Ron DeSantis signaling to donors that, hey, like, I'm going to be responsive to what you want me to do in a way. And maybe he really does believe this stuff, right? But a lot of Republicans have sort of said, that they want universities to be a lot more clear on this issue. And you see all these major donors pulling out of major universities, stopping to give after they've given like tens of millions of dollars to Harvard and UPenn and all these other prestigious institutions. And I just think it's really interesting that Ron DeSantis is now taking action on this because, again, this is very popular in the Republican Party at this point at the high levels. And so I do find it a little ironic, though, that the campaign has raised so much money and has done nothing with it. I'm still waiting for Ron DeSantis to have his breakout moment, and he has stuff like this where very occasionally he will make a move that is national news. But he hasn't done anything with it, and he's still not hammered home on the ads, and I'm still just kind of sitting here twiddling my thumbs, waiting. We all thought Ron DeSantis a year ago was looking really good. He was ahead of Trump in the polls, he was really gaining momentum, and then he did nothing with it. Slash, slash, like we said on the show, the second Donald Trump was going to be indicted is when he was going to get popular again. That is exactly what happened, and Ron DeSantis and everyone else have just been in the dustbin of all the polls after Donald Trump um, had the Justice Department coming after him, right? The second that happened, Trump skyrocketed to number one, and Ron DeSantis, maybe he still has a shot, and by doing things like this, he still stays in the conversation, but like ultimately bringing it back to like the Republican primary here, what is Ron DeSantis really doing here? Like Nikki Haley, sure. Ron DeSantis, sure. That's fine. Vivek, of course, is going to take his oddball, you know, third party stance within the own Republican Party saying these other two people are wrong. <laughs> they should be allowed to say whatever they want. Support these student groups. Yeah. Like a hyper MAGA stance. I wouldn't call it a third party stance because he's basically taking what Trump said about isolationism and taking it to, to sure. the extreme saying if there's no interest of the U.S. to be there, we will not be there. We're not spending our tax dollars there. Well, Ramaswamy would be in support of putting troops in Israel. He wouldn't be in support of fighting this war in Ukraine. But 
No, but the only thing he's in support of an Israel critique, what he said in the interview with Piers Morgan, is that he would only go in to extract U.S. hostages, and then he would get out, and Piers said, what about the Israeli hostages? And Ramaswamy just didn't say anything. It's like, what, <laughs> what are you not going to do anything about them? Like, he, he is so clear about that. At least Ramaswamy's consistent, though, too. <laughs> Look, he, he is consistent and he's very clear. He's like, if you believe that America should actually come first, I'm going to hold all of those p positions to the nth degree. And look, it seems to be working okay for him, for a guy that no one's heard of to come to where he is now is crazy. But then you have a guy like RFK, who at least has the name. And with that, he's been able to like really make a dent as of late. So let's, let's What's move he been on doing, to our next Tyler? story. What's yeah, he been doing? Uh, so will RFK help Biden? Build back better. Thank you, Pratik. A Quinnipiac University national poll released on Wednesday showed that in a hypothetical general election matchup with RFK, Biden's support drops to 39%, Trump's support drops to 36%, and Kennedy receives 22% of the vote, suggesting that Kennedy, who ran as a Democrat first, would harm Trump more than Biden in a three-way race. Three other major polls conducted by Harvard Harris, Redfield and Wilton Strategies, and McLaughlin and Associates showed Trump around 39%, Biden around 38%, and RFK at 14% on average. With the Quinnipiac University poll, where RFK is averaging about 14 to 15%, achieving a 22%, albeit an outlier, it puts the question, will RFK help Biden build back better? Guys, what are your thoughts on RFK? I am surprised. This is the thing is like they keep hyping up this stuff, the narrative on the Democratic side that, oh, RFK coming in, that's going to help so somehow help Biden win. But the weird thing is that in this poll, it does show that RFK polled around 22%, which did pull from Trump voters a lot more from Biden voters. Again, it's all outlier where if certain people... Like certain of the other polling agencies, when they polled, they saw Trump winning at 39%, followed by Biden at 38 and RFK at 14. If RFK is around 14, 15, 16%, then it does matter that, oh, like, okay, then in that case, Trump is the one that's winning. But if, if RFK is polling around 22%, that changes the whole game altogether. So that's the thing. And again, I would rather you, we just focus on polling. This is one poll. On average, what happens is what matters. So let's say that there was like five or six more polls that come out that show RFK at 22% plus. And if Biden is winning in the polls, then I'd say that that's the statement I'd want to have. But right now, based on the other three polls, if we've only had four polls on this, I would still argue that Trump like would still be the victor if RFK runs. But if that with the Quinnipiac poll, university poll, if that turns into becoming the more common ground and the new polls that take place, then I'll change my tone too because I don't know. It's weird that RFK is somehow like usually the case is still Ross Perot theory. When Ross Perot ran in 1990s, it was him running against an incumbent Republican, George Bush Sr., and Democrat Bill Clinton. When two Republicans run against a Democrat, the Democrat always wins. It doesn't matter if it's an incumbent. What always happens is a Democrat will win. Same thing happened when he ran for re-election, Bill Clinton, where he ran against, or Ross Perot ran against Bob Dole, both Republicans, and then Bill Clinton. And then based on all that, Bill Clinton won too. So that's been the reverse psychology the last time this happened. So the question is, if you have two Republicans, or two Democrats versus one Republican, can the Republicans still win? And who knows, maybe it doesn't happen that way, but that's always been the political theory at place is that 
two part two people running from the same party versus another person from a different party will always help that other person from the different party win. Unless we had ranked choice voting. Bring it Maybe. back, baby. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. I, I just wanted to add that this is likely, if, if things continue going the way they're projected, to be the, the most voted uh, third-party candidate Probably. in U.S. history, which is just insane. Because, like, having Trump in the election was insane. The past eight years have been insane. And now we have a potential third-party candidate that could have over 20% of the vote in the U.S. This is unheard of. It, it kind of shows the lack of congruence with different people in our country people can't actually agree on what we should be doing that's why we're seeing more of a fracturing and also there are so many people that are desperate to have a candidate that just isn't what we have so far in the biden in the trump we know what we got with trump we maybe there's some corruption there at least he's going to trials for certain things whether you agree with it or not doesn't matter that's happening on biden's side he's so old the guy could barely say anything he's not coherent there is actually talk that in this latest ai executive order that you know, Obama had spearheaded pretty much everything, which is crazy to hear. We've had basically another four years of Obama. People are pissed at that. People want a leader and are uh, really searching for anyone that might have a chance. And because RFK has the Kennedy name, it gave him just of enough spark to get people's attention. And despite what people will call him a conspiracy theorist, he's crazy, his voice is terrible, all that. Pratik, you can do an impression in a second. It doesn't matter. People are so desperate to have someone they, they feel might better represent what they believe that they're willing to vote for a third party. And this, to me, re represents a big shift in politics and our political parties and where those parties are headed. Oh, will RFK help Biden build back better? Is that I? I swear Painful that was Painful to RFK. listen to, honestly, but yeah. <laughs> That's the question, though. Will RFK help build Biden build back better? What do you think? Final thoughts, Naked Dollar? Yes or no? The weird thing is that like he blends policy positions from both sides. Like he's ostensibly a Democrat. Republicans like him more, though. So, like Tyler was saying, it's and like you were saying, critique where if he's seen as being, if he pulls more from Biden's side then Biden's going to lose. If he pulls more from Trump's side, Trump could lose. So he really is going to be a spoiler candidate. And so that's just very interesting to see. RFK is also going to bring a lot of his own people, though, too. I feel. Like like non-voter people, you mean? Yeah. People that yeah. would never vote are going to come vote for RFK. Almost like Trump in, in the fact that people that yeah. voted for Trump, a lot of them didn't feel represented by politicians for a long time. And he was True. the first figure that they're like, I'm going to vote for this guy. RFK could represent that same thing. You're right. He's going to get all those liberal left-wing whack jobs that are anti-vax to support RFK. And the, the Republican and whack jobs that are anti-vax. He's going to win some Republican whack jobs too. And then he's going to win those people that are like, I don't believe in a political party system. I don't believe that we should have two parties dictating the show. Let's vote for this third party candidate. Like Tyler, prime yeah. example. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think he he just, he just he's able to capture a wider uh, like base. net of people, base of people than any other third party candidate in my lifetime. Maybe he captures a lot of these pro-Israeli Democrats because Biden is like being goofy about Palestine. Let's talk about this. We talked about it briefly. RFK supporting Israel and supporting what's going on is very counter to what people would have expected from a guy. Even I, I, very, I was wrong. He's very anti-war. Like that's, that was always one of his positions. So if you are a supporter of this guy and you thought he was your anti-war candidate, can you still say that after Israel? I think to some degree you can. 
But at the same time, I could say Trump is anti-war. Like, I feel like Trump is one of the most anti-war um, politicians and presidents we've had in a long time. Because when he speaks about warfare, he basically says, yeah, I just don't want people to be killing each other. Let's see if we could figure out something to, to get it past that. Um, so I'm not quite sure if, if, if RFK is going to be losing well, any of his base because of that position. Man. Look at them. Look at Biden. The guy can't even, like, stand up for his country. Biden's not a pacifist. Look at I don't think he's a pacifist. I mean, like he explicitly when he was running said he called for a positive war in three special, weeks man he couldn't even he, take he it. said yeah but he said that he was going to still have special operations units operating in the middle east with pretty much zero justification for it he's like we're still going to have a presence in the region we're not going to get out of there and that's why there's still american troops in the middle east that you know you're wondering like what are who are what are these military bases being bombed by other people while the israel hamas stuff is going on it's like Biden supports all of that. He supports us staying in the region with special forces units. Granted, not conventional stuff, but but yeah, he's he's definitely not you know this big peace guy. I would argue that guy. Trump was very anti-Iran too. In Trump administration, we almost went war with Iran four times, and Iran is the one that's like the major player in this. Like, sure, Hamas is the person attacking, but the person coordinating the attack is Iran. Like, Iran is the biggest player in this whole game. And if it wasn't for Iran, Hamas wouldn't have the financial capabilities to even attack Israel to begin with. So that's the crazy thing to think about here is that, you know, it's like, yeah, sure, it's the wars between Israel and Hamas. But America being a crappy ally where America should be a stronger ally than we are, it technically is a, like, you know, a secondary war between America and Iran. It's just not labeled that way. But America is the, the Iran is not doing this just to exterminate Israel. They're also doing this to piss off America. But America needs to also stand their ground and support Israel when push comes to shove. And I think that we're being wishy-washy about it. And I just think that America just needs to change their tone and become a stronger ally. So speaking of a wishy-washy situation, let me move to a different conflict. Which Tyler and Nick don't really know much about. I've learned a lot about it. I've read about it, for sure. <laughs> I know. But I've learned a lot about it from Indian family members that have told me about it. I didn't never really knew India and Canada had this big old conflict that they do. But it's called One Khalistani Indian-Canadian Conflict. So tensions between India and Canada heightened after Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau suggested plausible connections between Indian government agents and the murder of Canadian Sikh separatist leader Hardeep Singh Nijar, an advocate for an independent Sikh state in India called Khalistan. Nijar, listed among India's top wanted terrorists, supports the idea of a separate Sikh nation and a rebellion within Punjab. The Khalistan movement, aspiring to establish an independent Sikh state, emerged after India and Pakistan's partition in 1947. India views the Khalistan movement as a national security threat, particularly after the turmoil in the 1970s and 80s. The conflict escalated when India's Prime Minister Indira Gandhi was assassinated by the terrorist group. So former Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi's contentious decision to send the military to the Golden Temple in pursuit of a major terrorist that was, you know, espising, uh, that was like coordinating all these Khalistani attacks led to her assassination by Khalistani supporters within her bodyguard on October 31st, 1984. The tragic event fueled widespread national outrage and a unified sense of mourning in the country over the loss of the prime minister. Soon after that, her son was also elected prime minister who won on the message, Rajiv Gandhi. Following, within, um, following which the historically largest 
uh, terrorist attack in Canada took place, where Canadian Sikh terrorists hijacked and crashed Air India Flight 182, resulting in the death of 329 people, including Canadian, British, and Indian citizens. Although the Khalistan movement's significance in India, especially in Punjab, waned following these events, it still finds support among Sikh communities in Canada and other countries. The the biggest country that people from the Punjab area immigrate to after, you know, when they leave uh, India is they move to Canada. So there's a big Sikh population in Canada. The, this friction strained Indian-Canadian relations with India accusing Canada of inadequately seek, uh, addressing Sikh extremism and failing to safeguard Indian officials from Khalistani groups' harassment. Trudeau's seemingly vocal support and sympathy for the Sikh Khalistani movement has contributed to the escalation of tensions between India and Canada. This has impacted trade talks where Prime Minister Narendra Modi has also expressed concerns over Sikh protests to Trudeau during diplomatic meetings. So, sum it up. There in India, there when the India Pakistan partition took place, India being a technically Hindu state, which it wasn't really because we have all kinds of cultures living in India, Pakistan being a completely Muslim state where all the people living in Pakistan are 99% Muslim. The Sikhs who were from Punjab area and Punjab being split between India and Pakistan, where half of Punjab is in India and half of Punjab is in Pakistan. They um, wanted to have a movement called Khalistan where they wanted to have their own country. The people of Punjab, for the most part, since all the stuff that took place in India, they're all pro-India. They're happy with India. They're happy to be a part of India. And most Punjabis have like really are, are a major part of Indian culture, like from Indian movies, culture, music, everything dealing with Indian history has Punjabis written all over it. So they're a big part of our Indian culture. But the a lot of people that had um, immigrated to other countries, particularly Canada, still have this movement saying that we want Khalistan to be our own, its own country and we don't want to be affiliated with India. And much of the terrorist activities that have happened have happened from people living in Canada um, coordinating attacks in India. So it's Canadian Sikh terrorists. So it's a very complex matter where it's like the people in India that are the ones that would be living in Khalistan if Khalistan ever was to become a na nation. They're happy to be a part of India and Pakistan. They don't really want to be its own country. But it's all these people that had immigrated from Punjab to other countries, particularly Canada, that have been the ones sympathizing with the cause. And the problem has happened where basically Canada, because all these, this is technically a terrorist organization. I mean, once freedom fighters, another person's terrorist, these people that are living in Canada have received a lot of support from Trudeau and Trudeau has been a big, uh, he's kind of like seemingly seemed to be a vocal advocate of the Khalistani movement, which has pissed off India a lot. And that's like, you know, strained our relations with Canada where Indians are not getting Canadian visas anymore. And Canadians are like trying that want to come back to India are not being a allowed to come back to the country that sort of stuff it just caused a lot of potential problems so just wanted to sum it up because this is a conflict that we don't really know much about even me as an indian i didn't even know much about it but i did my research and i was like just wanted to bring it up so what are your thoughts on the whole story hopefully it made sense i didn't complicate it i'm pratik i don't think me and tyler are going to add very much to this the hey, only yeah. thing i would hey, say what are you is talking about? no hold on i know I'm all about in terms of like the background of this okay okay all right, don't give me that. But for for this, for example, let's say suppose this were in the United States. Suppose there was an American um, citizen who is also affiliated with a foreign national group, and that a foreign government supposedly orchestrated the killing of that American citizen on U.S. soil. Like, how would we feel about that? 
probably you'd be like, well, this person's an American living in America. I don't like that a foreign government organized yeah. their assassination. But to your point, if you were if you were connected with what the Indian state views as a terrorist group, he's a he's in, a top ten wanted terrorist. Yeah, so it's like it's like what what do you really do in that case? You know, do you extradite them? Do you do something else? If you're not able to resolve it diplomatically, you know, does the Indian state just come in and they're like, yeah, you know, we did it. Think about think about Osama bin Laden at the time. So Osama bin Laden was murdered in Pakistan. So American forces coordinated an attack to go into Pakistani territory and mm -hmm. murdered Osama bin Laden. So Osama bin Laden was not in American soil. He was in Pakistani soil where we coordinated an attack to murder somebody on a different country's soil. It's kind of the same thing where if you were American, you don't like Osama bin Laden. You'd be like, Osama bin Laden, really, really, really bad guy. We should do whatever mm -hmm. it takes to murder this guy. But on the flip side, people that were probably in Pakistan are like, man, all these Americans, well, they came into our yeah, country. Yeah, why is the U.S. military somebody. in my country right now? Exactly. <laughs> like, so it's the same yeah. thing, kind of, except what happened is like the Indians basically came into Canada, arrested this guy, took him back to India, murdered the dude. That's what happened. It didn't ha they, they arrested them and like, you know, the Canadian uh, Trudeau, he was pissed because these are kind of his voter base. The Khalistani people have been supporting Trudeau. So because of that, I mean, it's the terrorism. It's kind of like the Palestinian people. It's the same kind of thing. It's like, you know, you, if you pro-Palestine, it's like you being pro-Khalistan. Like these aren't people with the state. These are people that don't have a state. That's it's just yeah. promoting a movement. I got to be honest, anything Trudeau does, I mean, I think the guy's absolute moron. I have no idea how he's still in charge. Everything he does, every article I see about him, I'm like, I have no idea what this guy's doing. In this case, he seems to be one of those people where it's like, if there is a state that's represented as being oppressed, not state, an organization, etc., he he's going to support them no matter what, just blanket. I don't think he puts much thought into these things. Like you said, he does have that voter base. But if I'm India, yeah, I mean, the U.S. would have done probably the same thing. I can't say I see too much of an issue with it simply because Canada is not doing anything to address it. You can't be supporting another country's terrorist organization and expect no repercussions for that. Even if you're Canada, even if you're seen as the nice guys, that's not how the world works. So here, I think India is actually probably in the right in this case. Um, that's kind of all I have to say. Well, let's get to putting politics over people. So last week, Speaker Mike Johnson had a classic gaffe in a fundraising email where he wrote saying, quote, I refuse to put people over politics. So this <laughs> people transformed his verbal tumble into a slapstick war against the Republicans. Minority leader Hakeem Jeffries, a Democrat of New York, seized the opportunity, jumping onto the metaphorical stage to deliver his punchline. Jeffries raised the rhetorical curtain with, quote, House Democrats will continue to put people over politics. <laughs> Why is that an issue for our Republican <laughs> colleagues? End quote. So kind of a kind of a funny thing. And let me just get in one more uh, story in here. So Santos says thank you to his lovers. So uh, Rep. George Santos, who we all know and love, of New York, wrote handwritten thank you notes to every member of Congress that voted to keep him on the island earlier this week. In his letter, he said, quote, I want to sincerely emphasize that I know that your vote was not done for me, but for the sanctity of this institution and the possibility of setting a very dangerous precedent, end quote. With the House voting 179 to 213 in favor of the resolution to expel Santos from Congress, so it failed, fell the two-thirds majority that you would need to remove a member of Congress per the Constitution. 
And Santos said on X, if you come for me, you best not miss. <laughs> oh Dude, my what God. a clown. But <laughs> Tyler and Pratik, both Santos what a and uh, the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, your reactions. I can't wait for the, the Netflix docu-series on Santos that comes out in the five years when he's probably gone, but like he's just had this crazy story. Starting with Sam- Santos, the reason he didn't get a, you know kicked out was because apparently there's only been five House members ever kicked out. A few were for treason. The other ones were convicted felons. And, and the argument was, unless he's convicted, we're not going to oust him just based off precedent. And he actually said this in the letters he sent. He said, I know you just did this for precedent. You don't actually care about me, but I appreciate you. But that final statement on X... If you come for me, you best not miss. It's such like a one-liner you would see in like a Transformers movie or something that I, I just can't help but laugh at this guy. He's still in the news, Pratik. We're over probably a year since we started talking about the guy. Santos will never die on this on the show. We love him. Um, but talking about Mike Johnson, what a you know, there are gaffes, and then there are gaffes that just the way they're presented just creates such an opportunity for your opponents. But saying, I refuse to put people over politics is like exactly what the cynical people view of the political world, that everything's done for political reasons. You don't actually care about citizens. You're pandering to get votes, and past that, it's me, it's me, it's me. And to come out and just say that explicitly, my God, not a good look. But I'm sure it'll blow past... I, no one's going to really hold this to him, but it was a PR, you know, bl- uh, blunder from him. Yeah, just a funny phone. gaffe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think the same thing with Mike Johnson. I don't, I don't, I obviously don't think that this guy did this on purpose. He just made a mistake, but it's just funny. <laughs> that's what you do in politics. And I would, if, if it was a Democrat that did the same thing and he made some statement like that, the yeah. Republicans would have bounced on him too. That's what you do in politics. Yo. Pratik, really quickly, this reminds me of when George W. Bush had a press conference. He's like, the terrorists never stop thinking of ways to hurt our people, and neither do we. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, you know that's not what he meant, but he just flipped it around. I wish we had the show for George Bush era. I feel like there were so many grabs. <laughs> Classic. But, yeah, and then with Santos, I don't really have strong opinion. I just think it's funny that this guy still managed to stay in there. He's managed to stay in there, though, because he's changed his tone a lot. There's certain things that Santos did where he just decided to, you know, become a peg on a board, which helped him. If he didn't do that, then he would have probably been on the chopping block, too. But the problem is with George Santos is, like, every it's a live-and-let-live policy situation in politics. If you don't really mess around with people that much... People are really not going to mess around with you all that much either. And I think that's what's happened with George Santos is that if George Santos was starting to attack people and say all kinds of negative stuff about everybody, then everybody would have like, you know, a movement to be like, let's get rid rid of this guy. And then Democrats and Republicans would have probably compromised together to remove this guy. But it didn't happen that way because George Santos became a peg on the board after having a conversation with McConnell and it worked out. So... The point of this story is, is that if you are a garbage person and if you're a garbage rep, become a blind supporter of the party if you want to stay in politics. Because if you don't, you'll be removed. So one thing, by the way, which I just need to add before we go on to um, what else is going on in New York with Santos, because he's from Long Island, he's <laughs> he was called out for saying that one, his mom died during 9-11. I think she died afterwards which I think you may be able to have some link, but again, like she didn't die during the actual day. 
Um, that's number one. And number two, since we talked about 9-11 earlier, and number two, since we're talking about Israel, um, he also claims that his grandparents fled Hitler during the Holocaust, which was also a lie. So, I mean, Santos just tries to get himself into every single situation and truly represents every corner of American society. The moral of the story here is you can, you know, do credit card fraud. You can steal puppies from a puppy shelter. You can be your own campaign manager and lie to donors. <coughs> you can do all that. But if you don't upset the system, if you don't poke the bear and you're a good little boy that just does what you're told, you can make it in politics. So with that, you know, that that's our that's our character. Um, but let's so move on. The business fraud in New York, it continues. So the founder of failed cryptocurrency exchange FTX, Sam Bankman Fried, was found guilty on seven counts, including charges of wire fraud by a New York grand jury. According to the SEC, that's the Securities and Exchange Commission, FTX was a fraud from the start, with a multi-billion dollar deficit caused by his, mis his own misappropriation of customer funds. According to The Guardian, lawyers for the New York Attorney General presented evidence that the two brothers had been presented with paperwork, suggesting they had no prior no that they had prior knowledge of statements a judge has ruled clearly contained fraudulent valuations. And Trump's sons, this is going on to Trump, by the way, not just FTX with Sam Bankman, but... Uh, Trump's sons deny knowledge of financial statements at the heart of a $250 million fraud trial. Donald Trump Jr. says he, quote, relied upon accountants for financial statements, while Eric says he never had anything to do, which, frankly, I do not doubt. Eric Trump, something missed there. I don't know. Like, you know, you share the family brain cells the best you can, and Eric doesn't have many. So anyway, Pratikin Tyler, your your reactions to this? For for anyone familiar with the show Succession, um, he reminds me of Connor Roy, who just like didn't do anything, but then he wants to run for president and he gets a few percent. <laughs> but anyways, um, look, we know everything to do with Trump and his trials until there's a conviction. None of it's matter. None of it matters. It probably only helps him, as Pratik points out constantly. If he's in the news from this and he doesn't get charged, it's just a witch hunt. They were just going after him for political reasons, and he's going to gain in the polls. So I have to wait to see that to play out to really make any comments on what's going on there. Going to the FTX thing, this was just like our modern-day Bernie Madoff. The reason we included it was just because it was also in New York. It was just like a major trial. This guy... Young guy, I heard he didn't hire anyone at his company that was over 35 years old because they were too old and not innovative enough. Well, apparently he was too innovative to use any sort of accounting techniques that would have prevented him to go to jail for the rest of his life. So he ended up getting convicted there. He, tr he tried to basically say, I didn't know what was going on as the CEO of this multi-billion dollar company. Everyone else did. And then after the trial, they're like, actually, no, you're not as much of an idiot as you're trying to portray yourself to be. You're going to jail. And the sentencing is in March. He's going to jail for a long, long, long time. So that's the end of, of that saga. All right. Well, let's move on to the final story. <clears throat> MMA wannabe Zuckerberg tears ACL. So Mark Zuckerberg suffered a torn ACL while training for a martial arts competition to fight Elon Musk. On Instagram, Meta CEO shared, tore my ACL, sparring, and just got out of surgery to replace it along with an array of photos from a hospital bed. Um, Zuckerberg said, Grateful for the doctors and team taking care of me. I was training for a competitive MMA fight earlier next year, but now that's delayed a bit. So, Megan Tyler, what are your thoughts on Zuckerberg getting beating up himself, basically, during his ACL, and preparing to beat up Elon Musk? 
This is so stupid, dude. Why is Zuckerberg trying to train for a competitive MMA fight? If he wants to do MMA fighting as like a fun little thing to do, that's fine. Good for him. He's got so much money. Do your thing. And I don't even, he's not the CEO anymore. He's not, you know, he, he's just hanging out at this point. But he's the CEO. For the competitive M- oh, he is? I thought. Uh, of yeah, Meta? He's the yeah. CEO. yeah. Is he really uh, not the. He's yeah. still the CEO. Yeah, okay. he has a majority. Oh he owns majority of shares in a publicly traded company that is worth tens. Of Sorry, I had assumed with all this free time that he has training for MMA that he surely must not be the CEO anymore because, like, if you're the, you don't have time for this stuff if you're a normal CEO. So anyway, I that's that's good to know. You but, make um, time, Nick. Wait, you so that's fight. even worse then. <laughs> that's even worse then because what if? So he's actually the CEO. He's the visionary of the company, right? What if he actually goes into a real MMA fight yep. and gets the crap kicked out of him, has brain injury? Like, this is just not a good idea in any way. This is like, for example, um, it's not Goldman Sachs. It's not. Is it Goldman Sachs? There, there is some uh, prominent banker who is a CEO who is a DJ on the David side. Solomon, I think Goldman Sachs. OK, Solomon. OK, so Solomon, you know, he had to hang up his headphones recently. Because people pressured him to give up his DJ career to focus more on the business. And so for, you know, if you're DJing, like, maybe someone throws a beer at you and you get hit. But, like, that's not traumatic brain injury or whatever. Mark Zuckerberg going into, quote, a competitive MMA fight, like, that'll mess you up. So I I just really question why he's even doing it if he's still the CEO. That's something you do after you retire. But Tyler, go ahead. Yeah, so I can comment on a lot of that. So I I am a big fan of MMA, have been for a long time. So... First, I think this shows you no matter what you achieve in this life, there's always something. There's always more. This guy made tens of billions of dollars. He could do anything what he wants with his time, but he's going to fight in a ring because he knows that he doesn't have physical respect and he wants to be respected as a fighter, not just a great business leader. This reminds me of, you know, kings in Rome, the emperors in Rome going into the Colosseum fighting bums and saying, look at me, I am victorious, I am your great leader, everyone praise me. You know who it reminds me of? It reminds me of Donald Trump. Donald Trump was a successful business owner. He even went into WWE, was a CEO of that for a little bit. Yeah, but WWE is fake to be real. There's also different levels of success. Zuckerberg 100x'd Donald Trump's businesses in terms of, you know, just pure dollars. So I think he's way more more successful businessman. Zuckerberg's public. Also, Trump is way more likable than Zuckerberg. But look, guys, the whole thing about the free time, that's BS. I don't think anyone on this earth can only do one thing ever. And and then that's their whole life. And if they do anything else, that's detracting. I think most people need some sort of balance. You need hobbies, for instance. Now, maybe he's taking a little far. How do you feel about presidents playing golf, Tyler? Look, they all play freaking golf. You need to take time off, though. We're you not robots. To. Otherwise, otherwise you, you, need to un- you need to unwind. Some people like video games. Some people like cage matches. And I actually have no issue with the fact that he's training. But what happens to the company where your CEO just tore his ACL? He's probably not going to be able to perform his job function as well. They've been sinking billions of dollars in the metaverse, which hasn't even turned a profit. is isn't even close to even potentially turning a profit. There are a lot of issues going on there. I think it's personally cool that a billionaire is training MMA, though. It it, it at least shows like the guy has guts. Even if he's going to go fight some can that has no idea what he's doing and he's guaranteed a victory, he's still willing to walk into a cage and go fist to fist with someone else. And that's kind of pretty cool in a way. So I know I said a lot of of things. That's all I'm saying. I don't know. He doesn't really remind me of Trump. Trump. No, but see, when Trump was at his prime, before he ran for president, 
So whenever he was doing The Apprentice, when he was like on WWE, he did a lot of other random stuff. One of those things was um, we got rid of, uh, I forgot what the main guy is, McMahon. So Donald Trump literally was like, he, he gets rid of McMahon. He overpay, he like, you know, buys WWE and like kicks McMahon out. And then he runs the show for a little bit. And it was like, he got into a few fights, obviously all orchestrated. So half of it's probably fake, but he got into these fights and it was like a big deal. Like, oh, Donald Trump, he's a WWE guy too now. Thing about Trump is he did a lot of stuff before he ran for president. And how many CEOs run for president? Not many of them. Donald Trump did that too. He's like Manny Pacquiao of America, man. He does everything. He's Donald Trump. Yeah, Pratik, well, we have a new CEO running in the Republican Party for literally every single presidential election cycle. Don't tell me that CEOs don't run for president. But do none of them win. <laughs> none of them win apart from Donald Trump. Hey, you're true on that. You're That's true. what well, I'm so far. So far. Ramos, yeah, with that, CEO <laughs> with that, guys, that is Politicana this week. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to episode 155. We will, of course, catch you next week. Please follow. Please share. As I say, it really helps us out. Thank you, and see you next week. Later.